The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Uh, Dave, there was always interest from filmmakers, actors, you know, the material was so strong but from the marketplace and from a financing and distribution point of view it just was perceived as you know not uh, commercial um you know the chess subject matter seemed you know very narrow and uh, you know young girl in kentucky in the 50s orphan um so we just were swimming upstream Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Here's a question. Is chess a sport? This week we're talking to the producer of the widely praised Netflix series The Queen's Gambit, William Horberg. Now you might not know William Horberg's name, but he's produced some of your favorite films, including one of my favorites, The Talented Mr. Ripley, and another chess film, Searching for Bobby Fischer. Can't wait to speak to him. Also, I've got some choice words about the Baltimore Ravens COVID game and more. But first, let's talk to William Horberg. The question that came to me just to to frame this conversation is, you know, you've worked on such an eclectic array of films. So what what drew you to The Queen's Gambit? The book. Uh, I've done a number of book to film adaptations. And in this case, um, I was tipped off to this book by the author Michael Ondaatje, uh, who, of course, wrote The English Patient, among other things. Uh, I had a close relationship with Anthony Minghella, uh, the filmmaker of The Talented Mr. Ripley and Cold Mountain, uh, two films that I produced. And through him, I met uh, Ondaatje. And I remember him saying to me that The Queen's Gambit was a book that he himself picked up every couple of years to reread, to, mm-hmm. remem- to remember how to write. And I was so impressed by that because, you know, he's no slouch uh, that I ran out to get the book myself and uh, I just gobbled it up. It was one of those reads where from the first page, uh, I was kind of hooked on this character of Beth Harmon and her emotional circumstances and then you know just was uh, page turning like crazy to see what was going to happen to her and i finished it and thought man why hasn't anybody ever uh, made this as a movie and you know i knew walter tevis's work the author uh from that movie the hustler that you know was a favorite of mine growing up and uh lo and behold i got involved in tracking down the rights and the search eventually led me to a man named Alan Scott, uh, who's a screenwriter and a producer, a Scottish gentleman. Uh, And he was somebody I knew. I had worked with him in the early nineties on a TV series I produced for Showtime called Fallen Angels. He, he wrote one of the episodes of that show. 
so it was really funny. It was like a long search that led me back, you know, right to somebody who I had a relationship with anyway. And we talked and, you know, he'd been uh, laboring to get it made as a, as a feature film. And I asked if he, you know, wanted or needed help and I'd love to join him and, you know, uh, see if together we could get this uh, over the hump. And, uh, Dave, there was always interest from filmmakers, actors, you know, the material was so strong, but from the marketplace and from a financing and distribution point of view, it just was perceived as, you know, not uh, commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the chess subject matter seemed, you know, very narrow and, uh, you know, young girl in Kentucky in the fifties orphan, um, so we just were swimming upstream, uh, you know, as much as we had, uh, talent and, and, you know, passion uh, to get it made. Uh, Scott Frank, the writer director, who, who's an old, old friend of mine from my Paramount days, he was one of the people I had shown the book to and, um, he loved it, you know, and we went around with him for a while, but we just couldn't find a way to do it. So it was really the whole evolution of the market and the creation of, you know, uh, digital streaming platforms and the liberation, let's say, of format that allowed for, you know, these multi-part limited series. Um, And that was the game changer. You know, it, it took all those years to finally get to the place where Scott had made Godless for Netflix uh, which was a great show, and they they loved it and wanted to keep working with him. And he remembered Queen's Gambit and called me, and I called Alan, and we all got together and, uh, you know, decided to kind of abandon uh, trying to make it as a movie and pursue it as this uh, limited series. Now, when I hear the name Scott Frank, I mean, he's had a remarkable career, but the first thing that pops into my head is, oh, he wrote Little Man Tate. (laughs) Exactly right. Does Scott Frank have um, a predilection for child prodigies? Is this this an interest that he has in exploring? Well, it was part of why I gave him the book and thought that it would be up his alley, uh, certainly. Uh, And I think that he felt like that, you know, the theme of, uh, child prodigies, the theme of really the cost of genius mm-hmm. was something that he hadn't, you know, fully realized, I would say, as a, the very young man that he was when he wrote Little Man Tate. And so he wanted to return to that and saw in this book uh, an opportunity to really go, you know, deeper and, and further. Um, and, you know, I met Scott, he was in his early 20s. He was a uh, and he already had a deal at Paramount. He, he, he had an office in the writer's building there. And we became close friends just because we shared a love, a mutual love for a lot of uh, authors and books. We'd always be trading books with each other. And uh, I became the executive on that movie Dead Again that he wrote with mm-hmm. Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson. All-time favorite of mine. Oh, great. <laughs> I mean, he's such a movie fan. And for, for folks out there listening, Scott Frank also, uh, he wrote, I believe, Out of Sight, which might be one of the great films of the last generation. Yeah, and Get Shorty. You know, he he had a nice relationship with Elmore Leonard, and Leonard 
you know, really, uh, he was one of his preferred uh, adapters of his work. Um, and, you know, he wrote Minority Report. He, he's one of the very top uh, screenwriters in, in Hollywood. Uh, and then he knocked me out with his first movie, The Lookout, I, I really loved. And uh, he's just grown and grown. You know, The uh, Godless was epic. Um, and in some ways, Queen's Gambit was even more epic. He said, you know, he thought the hardest thing he'd ever done was shooting horses until he had an orphanage full of children. Oh, wow. Um, and, and speaking of which, I guess before I ask more in-depth questions about Queen's Gambit, I have to ask about Anya Taylor-Joy, uh, the star of Queen's Gambit. I mean, I felt like I'd never seen this person before when I'm watching Queen's Gambit. Then I looked her up and saw that she was the star of Split, uh, the M. Night film. And I, I had seen Split twice and I didn't recognize her. Queen's Gambit. <laughs> Um, you know, it's the red hair, but it was more also just like her expressions, just just an entirely different character. When when Anya Taylor Joy auditioned, did you just know, or did she even have to audition? Because I almost feel like Queen's Gambit. One of the reasons why it works so successfully is because she's so. I mean, she she's like a magnet uh, on screen. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Dave. Uh, she just was a gift in every way, and. Um, uh, she actually was our first choice. Uh, Scott and I had seen her in The Witch, you know, as a teenager, and she made such a big impression. And then uh, that movie Thoroughbreds, I thought she was great in. Um, Scott works closely with uh, one of the best casting directors in the business, uh, another Chicagoan, uh, Ellen Lewis. And, um, you know, when they first started talking about the book, she put together a short list of uh girls the uh, age to to play this role and anya you know was on her list and they did a quick you know look at a whole bunch of film and she emerged as scott's first choice and um it was just one of those great things you know he uh, we sent her the book uh we didn't have a script at that point we had uh, scott hadn't written it and um she read the book in one sitting and uh, really saw herself uh, in this character and like ran to lunch with Scott in London. And uh, it's funny you said the red hair because she ran in and she said, Beth is a redhead. <laughs> and Scott said, that's how I see her too. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, what turned out to just uh, uh, be a, you know, first meeting lunch uh, by the end of the lunch, they had, you know, uh, decided to do the show together and, um, she came on board and man, she just brought so much in every way, you know, her choices were both so true, but also consistently surprising. And, you know, we needed somebody who could play, let's say 14 to 22. Uh, you needed somebody who you just believed instantly, you know, was really a brilliant person. Uh, and you needed a face that you could just park the camera on because we knew that so much of this was going to live, you know, between the words and, you know, just on these uh, moments of her uh, experiencing the game and the wheels turning or her, you know, uh, imagining the game on the ceiling of her the orphanage at night. And so uh, Anya just has that face, you know, and those eyes and. Uh, that was it for us. We just knew that we had someone that 
you know, we could hold the viewer's attention uh, through her. And then, you know, her ability to physicalize that transformation and, you know, the way she walks changes, the way she moves changes. Uh, you know, she just is, um, yeah, she glued the whole show together for sure. Yeah, it's funny. Um, the, the way she looks at the board reminds me of a movie we mentioned earlier, The Hustler, like Paul Newman looking at a pool table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Tevis, you know, he put a lot of himself in these books. Um, uh, you know, I, I never got to meet the guy, sadly. He, he died in the mid-'80s. Um, but our chess consultant, was this wonderful uh, New Yorker, Bruce Pandolfini. And I had uh, worked with Bruce on Searching for Bobby Fischer years ago. In fact, the Ben Kingsley character in that movie is Bruce Pandolfini. Uh, Kingsley is playing him as the teacher of that young boy. And uh, when I knew we were kind of reviving Queen's Gambit, Bruce was the first guy I called and I brought him to lunch with Scott. And then at the lunch, he revealed to us that he actually had been Tevis's consultant in the writing of the book, that the publisher, you know, had wanted Walter to have somebody who could authenticate and kind of vet the chess games. Uh, so he was hanging out with Walter in that time when he was revising the manuscript. And he revealed to us that he was the guy who actually suggested to Tevis that he called the book uh, The Queen's Gambit. It, it had a different title at that time. So we felt through Bruce that we had a kind of karmic uh, connection uh, back to Tevis. Um, and Bruce told us, you know, that Tevis was himself an orphan and, uh, you know, he did have a lifelong struggle with alcohol and substance abuse. And I guess he was even given those tranquilizers. So. Uh, there's a lot of Tevis in this uh, story, uh, and that's, I think, what makes it so authentic. Yeah. Um, to, to get in the weeds a little bit for the, for the choices that, that you, you made on the creative end, I thought one of the interesting things about it was how insular the players' lives were. I mean, it's like the 1960s are raging outside their door, but there's an obliviousness to it, even in much of their clothes, the fashion even the music and the soundtrack, I was so relieved that Fortunate Son wasn't played when it became 1968. Thank you for that. Um, and was that intentional, to sort of keep that raging outside world away from these players? Well, I would say what was intentional is that the whole story is in Beth's point of view, you know, and you're in her shoes and so you're experiencing the world as she experiences it. And, you know, she has taken refuge in the 64 squares of a chessboard. And, um, you know, given the trauma of her early childhood and um, the loneliness that, you know, she endures as a character, you know, sh her whole journey is a kind of journey from standing alone in the entire universe on that bridge to being surrounded by uh, a group of elderly Russians in a park in Moscow and kind of having formed her own uh, family in a way through all these relationships she's made growing up. So, um, 
you know, it didn't feel like uh, the story was one in which um, the kind of political and social context of the 60s, you know, was not something that was uh, part of her experience. You know, she was really um, kind of keeping herself in this lane, let's say. Um, I mean, a lot of what we learned came through, you know, uh, Bruce introduced us to Gary Kasparov, who's mm. probably the greatest chess player of all time. And Gary became both a technical consultant for us in helping us, you know, get the games right <clears throat> and designing some of these games, or actually some of them are real games, you know, from the 30s that he said, well, this would be good to <clears throat> use in this dramatic situation. Uh, but beyond that, he was a guy whose personal biography uh, mimicked in some way, you know, Beth's. He, you know, he might be a little bit younger than her, but, you know, he grew up in the 60s and he was a child prodigy and therefore he was kind of othered, you know, at the time he was six, seven, eight years old. And it was great listening to him, you know, and what his life was like and his family relationships and his peer relationships and getting into the Soviet chess machine. And, um, you know, that, that gave us a lot of insight in terms of, you know, how Beth might have uh, uh, been yeah, a little bit isolated, as you said. Mm. You know, there, there, there is, you mentioned it, there, there's a politics to the film as well. I, I've, I've thought, and a lot of people I know who've seen it have thought a kind of anti-Cold War politics, um, you know, with her, with Beth, excuse my dog, please, with Beth refusing the, the Christ crusade money uh, and what they ask her to say, and especially with her getting out of the car at the end, the graciousness of the Soviet players, you know, not being a kind of stereotypical machine. Um, does that come from the book? How intentional is that, 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 that kind of politics to the film? Yeah, I would say most of those movie uh, moments that you just cited are, are in the book. And um, I've seen some people like tweet that, you know, we're some like raging communist propaganda <laughs> film or something. Um, but, you know, the themes of the story, as I said, are certainly about her trying to regain uh, her human connections. And so the idea of her uh, being able to kind of take on the help of, um, you know, these uh, ex-boyfriends of hers um, and to you know, work in a group and the contrast between, you know, kind of American rugged individualism and uh, Soviet, you know, maybe more uh, collective uh, group uh, cooperation, you know, that was there. And it, it's a very important part, again, of her character's arc. Um, so, you know, there is a political connotation to it, but there's also the kind of personal uh, journey that she undergoes as a character. Um, some people thought she had defected at the end when she left the car. And, uh, we never uh, interpreted it that way. And it, that, so that wasn't our intent of the ending. You know, the ending for us was much more her smile when she turns the corner and is kind of uh, sees the, you know, um, 
the group of players, you know, uh, sitting at the tables, it's the first time that you feel like she's really comfortable in her own skin and relaxed and who she is and uh, able to kind of accept herself and be herself. And um, so that was kind of what we were uh, focused on, on on the ending. But I do think, you know, the Cold War context was very much the spine of uh, Bobby Fischer's whole, you know, uh, career ascension and uh, beating the Soviets, you know, was uh, a huge moment uh, for America collectively, you know, to have uh, Fischer as a a kind of avatar, let's say, of our, um, you know, Cold War stance against the Soviet Union. Um, and I do feel like Tevis's probably original conceit for the book was to, you know, kind of tell the Bobby Fisher story, but to flip the gender uh, and tell it through this young orphan girl's perspective. Um, so, of course, you know, the arc of it is uh, the pinnacle of chess. The chess world is in Moscow, and that's where she has to go to uh you know become the champion in the sports narrative of the story um but we felt for this to work for an audience that we had to kind of lean into the emotional personal narrative that the sports narrative was there and it would always be there and it had such a strong you know rooting interest in it um but uh, yeah, the scene with the church woman, I think that was, you know, fun in the book. And, uh, you know, we love her in that moment. And, uh, you know, she's kind of committing a little bit of financial suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I think another of Scott's great strengths is just, you know, balancing humor uh, and drama and, you know, finding moments of humor and unexpectedly dark corners of the story and also uh, putting a lump in your throat, you know, uh, uh, in things that seem like they're entertaining. So uh, I love that about his writing. You know, he really has a gift. I had numerous people ask me to ask you um, uh, if she defected at the end. So that's (laughs) not a, a, that's not something I saw when I was watching it, but I saw it more as a rebellion against the, the state department, but yeah, this moment of her getting out of the car and, and looking so at home and at peace among those players that people really did wonder. She was just saying, you know what, this is my new home. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it doesn't seem to me like a political choice. Uh, it seems like here's a place where the thing that I do the best and love the most is treated reverentially you know it's like uh, jazz musicians in uh, paris you know who left you know the racist uh, brutality of the american nightclub scene and you know went to a place where they were uh, celebrated and respected for their uh, amazing talents and uh, so that's how i kind of read the end we we it was a big casting search we actually brought these two guys from Latvia, I think, to be the faces of those old guys in the park at the end. That was like Scott was just determined to get exactly the right faces there. Uh, and it paid off. Those guys were, were brilliant. Yeah, you know, one of the um, 
criticisms that that Queen's Gambit has gotten has been around. And I didn't know. I want to know if you were aware of this or had comment on it. Was about the character of Jolene. Um, and I don't know if you've heard some of this, but about having a character, uh, the, the lone central black character in the show who sacrifices for the white protagonist, shows up to save her, makes everything okay. Uh, sometimes that's referred to as the the magical Negro character, the bagger Vance, if you will. Um, how do you respond? Yeah. And was, was that discussed I, I, at all I, in the filming? It, it certainly was. Um, you know, it's a, to me, it's a little bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. You know, uh, some people have said it was a, a stretch to imagine that there was even... Um, you know, a non-segregated orphanage in Kentucky in the 50s. Uh, uh, it was a character in the book, uh, she, Jolene, and uh, we believed it. And, you know, I think, um, I think it's one of the best uh, relationships uh, stories in the film. And um, it's very touching, you know, the way that she's uh, constantly passed over uh, you know, from getting adopted in the home and her and Beth kind of bond as the the lifers there while they watch these, you know, uh, golden children go out the door. Um, you know, some people have criticized that, you know, they wanted more of her and wanted her to be more central to the story. And I wanted more of her too. I, I, I loved her and uh, I love Moses Ingram, the actor who, portrayed her with so much subtlety and uh, dignity. Uh, but, of course, it wouldn't make any sense, you know? I mean, they're separated, and that's the whole uh, point of it, is that Beth, you know, doesn't have friends, and she doesn't uh, continue that relationship, and you really don't, you know, have a reason to expect that they would ever see each other again. And then it's so touching to me when the janitor dies and that becomes the motivating reason for Jolene to reach out to her and to come back into her life and to let her know that she's been following her uh, career from afar. And, you know, I think it's one of the best scenes in the whole series when they go to the orphanage and, you know, Beth discovers the shrine in the basement. And um, so, you know, what do you do? Like, not do that or change the character from the book to make it a white character to avoid the magic Negro trope. You know, we we actually wrote a whole scene where she says, hey, I'm not here to save you. Uh, and uh, I'm not your guardian angel. And, um, you know, kind of wanted to at least let people know that we were uh, sensitive to the uh, potential of people, you know, reading the text in that way. Um, but, you know, uh, what did somebody say? If you don't want to be criticized, do nothing. <laughs> so I think whatever you do, you know, there's going to be people who attack you from uh, some angle or another. Um, and uh, I think there is many people who uh, celebrate, you know, uh, Jolene and, uh, I've gotten 
hammered on Twitter of people who want a spinoff series of Jolene in the law firm and Jolene kind of, you know, kicking ass as a, as a militant, uh, uh, which I would love to see myself. So, you know, clearly uh, there's people who love the character and, and uh, I certainly think Moses, there's nothing cliche about uh, her interpretation of that role. Um, you know, to me, it was very deep and, and touching. The other question, and I'm sure you, you've gotten this a great deal, is the question of sexism in the chess world. Um, you know, the, the male players in Queen's Gambit, you know, they were at times a little bit huffy, but otherwise they were actually quite gracious with Beth. Um, was there concern that that was not a, a realistic view of what it's like for a woman in chess? Well, I, it's interesting because I just read something yesterday that I deeply agreed with. And it was kind of talking about the penultimate game in the show which is not the triumph over Borgoff, but it's the game uh, against Lushenko, who, you know, is portrayed as kind of the grand old man of Soviet chess and a kind of tiger of his youth who uh, might be past his prime, but is still a formidable player, etc. And it talks about that game as really being the, you know, kind of most sublime dramatization uh, and most surprising dramatization in his kind of old world uh, gentlemanly uh, reaction. And then the writer kind of went back through the games prior to that and actually saw what we intended, which was these kind of series of subtle snubs, you know, where someone won't shake her hand or, uh, you know, someone kisses her hand instead of shaking her hand, which becomes its own kind of sexist uh, gesture. Um, you know, Benny is like a super cocky, uh, you know, uh, male peacock in a way uh, <clears throat> when you meet him and uh, he's very condescending to her. So, um, you know, to us, it's a matter of, you know, how primary a color do you have to paint something in uh, versus just letting it be an accumulation of uh, subtle digs and jabs. And, um, you know, I think we felt uh, there was plenty of um, misogyny, let's say, or uh, patriarchy, uh, and that we didn't need to kind of hit people over the head with it any, any louder than that. You know, I, I um, first of all, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Do, do, you, do you have time sure. for more questions? Is that yeah, okay? I'm good. I'm good. I'm all good. I have a 11 a.m. call, but oh, I'm, oh no, we we, we, we done. I, I had this very interesting comment about um, on Facebook about Queen's Gambit, where uh, a woman said that she'd had a lot of debates with with her female friends because some of them absolutely loved it and some of them were uncomfortable with that it was almost like a fantasy of wish fulfillment for being a woman in a, a very, very male patriarchal world. I mean, getting her respect, getting a group of male friends who are in her corner, uh, you know, like this, this kind of like, like just incredible appreciation of Beth as a human being 
by the men around her is something a lot of women don't necessarily experience. Did did you speak about that as you were doing as you were doing it that this this was almost like a, a a fantasy in a way of being able to navigate and crush sexism? It was was that talked about at all? I mean, I, again, Dave, I would say I've read as many things of people who said, "God, I wish this." Uh, had come out when I was, you know, 15 years old. This is what I needed to see in my life. And this is what, um, you know, uh, people love about it, you know. So uh, I don't know. You know, I, I'm, uh, what would I say uh, without hanging myself? Uh, you know, we live in an age of uh, hyper uh, political correctness and people are, consuming content through uh, a lens in which they're kind of analyzing uh, a lot of these tropes uh, and everybody's got their uh, backup uh, around, um, you know, these issues, which are real issues, you know, of whose story is it and who gets to tell it and uh, whose perspective and, um you know, I think there's danger in that and there's a need for that. And it's kind of a paradox. And uh, everything that comes out now uh, is, uh, you know, being scrutinized uh, as to whether it is, uh, let's say, woke enough. Um, and, you know, my view of art is uh, art equals the freedom to do whatever the hell you want and say whatever you want. And, uh, you know, people can uh, reject it and criticize it. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I don't believe in, uh, kind of censoring it. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, all of these questions kind of are in that, uh, mode, let's say, you know, and, it seems to me there's been an incredible spectrum of reaction to the show. Uh, 90% of it has been very positive. Uh, people love it. And it's older people and younger people and men and women. And, uh, you know, young girls are joining chess clubs by, you know, record numbers. And uh, it's working all over the world. I, you know, I was on with people from Brazil and uh, Mexico and, and Chile yesterday, and uh, it's been the number one show in uh, Italy and Israel. Um, so, you know, it's an entertainment. It's not a documentary. Uh, you know, the book was uh, entertainment. Um, it has, you know, a, a political context uh, in the time it was set. It has a social context, um, you know, but, you know, Beth is not Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, she didn't uh, go to law school and suffer those kind of uh, glass ceiling issues. Um, and so uh, I think there is a little bit of a, a fable to it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I think there's a tremendous amount of truth in it. And uh, I, I don't think um, it... Uh, what would I say? I don't think it uh, crosses the line into somehow uh, being untruthful in the service of uh, <clears throat> grinding any kind of axe. Yeah. And I don't know if you've heard this from folks as well, but it was, um, 
and this maybe says something about media and culture or or, or how so many of these uh, female protagonist films operate, but it was a relief to watch it. And I'm just curious how conscious this was that there was no aspect of, of, uh, of Beth either as a child or as an adult being assaulted because there's almost like that fear when she's in a basement with, uh, with, with Mr. Shibley, uh, the school superintendent, you know, that I think we're programmed to feel when you see a young girl and an older man, you know, there's a fear when she's at the party and that doesn't come to pass. Was that something that was discussed openly as you were doing it? I, I honestly was a little bit more surprised by that, you know, and uh, uh, again, it, it seemed to me that like really, really heightened sensitivity to these tropes and um, almost like a, a prejudgment mm -hmm. and um, an anticipation uh, and I, I guess it's just, again, like there's more stories being told than ever in history. We live in this like super hyper abundance of content and, you know, everything has been pushed in such an extreme uh, commercial uh, <clears throat> direction. And so, you know, maybe I'm not just as uh, voracious a consumer of contemporary cult uh, content. So... Um, I don't see uh, uh, all of these shows and how uh, heavily they kind of lean into those formulas and tropes and, um, you know, uh, cliches of uh, systemic sexism and cliches of uh, female characters that aren't as uh, empowered or liberated. So um, it wasn't like we were doing it uh kind of being our own trope police. I think Tevis gave us a great uh, roadmap and Scott's a real artist and he brought his own humanity and sensitivity to the telling of it. And, um, you know, we had a pretty mixed uh, uh, creative team uh, in terms of gender um, and uh, everybody just loved it and wanted to make the very best version of it. And, um, you know, we, we were blessed with people like Anya and Moses and Marielle, who I, you know, all feel like would have easily called a flag on the play if they felt there was something, you know, there that, uh, was uncomfortable for them. And, um, Scott's a super collaborative filmmaker, you know, he, he, uh, with his key crew, you know, we're all making one movie. The look of the movie is is one thing. And so everybody works in a real collaborative way to achieve something that feels organic and of a whole. And same thing with the actors, you know, like a lot of rehearsal and discussion and, um, you know, trying to tune this up so everybody's playing in the same key. And, um, you know, I, I think... Uh, so it, it was a little bit um, interesting to me to see the degree to which that we had avoided uh, so many uh, traps that we could have fallen into because um, I don't think we were that pressured. Yeah, you mentioned Marielle. Just for folks listening, that's Marielle Heller who played uh, Beth's adoptive mother, who was a, another person who was unrecognizable 
Um, when I looked her up afterwards, I said, oh, her. <laughs> well, you know, she's a filmmaker, but she, she's, uh, so and she's so good. And that was such a gift. I mean, Scott had uh, been her mentor at the Sundance Lab when she was developing her first film, The Diary of a Teenage Girl. So he knew her and he knew her uh trajectory and that she'd been an actress who had started writing and now was transitioning to directing and then she you know made such great work and really you know blew up as a filmmaker he had originally offered to play her to play the actual birth mother the um you know the woman in the flashback uh sequences with the very young beth and um the casting of Alma, um, you know, just didn't work out for different reasons with schedule. Uh, so we, it was like a very last minute thing. We were like a couple of weeks away from shooting and we didn't have that central character in the show. And we were in Toronto. I remember just standing on the street scouting and Scott was like, what are we going to do, man? And I said, well, you know, you've got Marielle in this other role. What if we kind of bumped her up and, uh, do you think she would do it? And, you know, he said, yeah, I just don't know if Netflix is going to, you know, accept that casting. Like, that's a huge role. And they, they probably want a kind of more established name from the acting world. And I said, look, all they can do is say no. You know, let's take a shot. And uh, I know you love her and believe in her. And she's kind of the kind of person that you want for that role. And she has all those qualities. And. To their credit, because uh, I got to just say, Netflix was a great partner in the making of this. Um, it was a quick yes for them. They really trusted Scott. They were super happy with Anya and Bill Camp and some of the other actors already in the show. Um, and I can't think of another studio uh, in my experience that you know would have been as empowering to uh, us as the filmmakers and um you know just quickly given a blessing to something that was a pretty uh, leap of faith you know there was nothing we could really show to them um to give them proof that this would work and then you know to have it work uh, 1000 percent like this and have the audience you know they love it when they discover somebody who's a fresh face and there's no baggage and uh, do exactly what you're doing now they're looking them up and searching who is this person she's great you know and uh, there's no better feeling for us as filmmakers when we have the ability to you know introduce somebody that we just know has the the talent to <clears throat> um, bring so much to that role you know that could have been such a cliche, the kind of blousy 60s, you know, divorcee. And everything she did was the opposite of that. I mean, uh, it was just a, <clears throat> a great lesson. Amazing stuff. Um, now, you made The Queen's Gambit, as you mentioned. You were a producer of Searching for Bobby Fischer. But you're no kind of chess maven. Is, is that right? <laughs> I am certainly not. No, uh, pretty much... Anybody who plays chess could beat me <laughs> kind of handily. What um, attracts you to the sport? Well, my attraction came through stories. Uh, on Searching for Bobby Fischer, um, you know, I was a huge fan of Steve Zalian. I was an executive at Paramount at the time. 
And Scott Rudin, the producer, brought us that book, uh, a memoir by Fred Waitzkin. And Steve loved it, and I loved it, and my boss, uh, Gary Lucchese, loved it. And so we made a deal uh, to, for Steve to write it and for him to uh, you know, transition to becoming a writer-director. We, we wanted to support him, and we felt really confident that he'd be the excellent director you know, he became. And, um, and then when I, it just happened when the movie was already written and getting ready to get made, uh, I left Paramount to go join Sidney Pollack, and Scott Rudin was producing the firm, which Sidney was directing. And so Scott let me become his partner on Searching for Bobby Fischer. And we spent about a year, you know, kind of making those uh, two movies uh, together. Um, and so I didn't come to it through chess, you know, and I, I think uh, chess is a beautiful uh, game, as Beth calls it. Uh, it also has such great metaphorical power. And, you know, chess and music and math are really the three areas of human existence where you find the phenomenon of uh, child prodigies. And, um, you know, that movie was really about parenting and about competition. Uh, and it used the game to really explore, you know, Joe Montaigne's relationship with his son um, and, Joan, and Joan Allen. And, you know, in the same way here, we felt like Tevis's book uh, used the game um, and, you know, had this, uh, you know, thrilling sports narrative. But that wasn't really his aim. You know, his aim was really to uh, look at this character's uh, human journey and her struggles. And, you know, as we started off this conversation saying, you know, the, the cost of being a genius and um, being so different and so other and, um, you know, <clears throat> struggling with that. I think this is a survivor's tale. And I think in some way that's why it is resonating so widely and deeply now, you know, we, we live at such a moment of uh, global existential crisis. And uh, I think the appeal here is a strong female character. It's certainly the world that it's in. It's the allure of that world. Uh, I think the nuanced way all of our actors, you know, portray these characters. But I feel like beyond that, you know, in kind of a meta way, it's just people wanted to escape into somebody who was overcoming uh, this level of adversity and and surviving and uh, landing in a place where, you know, it's all about human connection. I mean, we're, we're so atomized and isolated and uh, our experience is so mediated by screens and you know, it must be just watching somebody surrounded by a crowd of people who are kind of uh, touching each other and breathing on each other. And, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's uh, it's moving, you know, because uh, we're start we're starving for human connection right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, th this leads to the big question that I promised my listeners I would ask you. It's, uh, do you think that chess is a sport or a game 
<laughs> what do you think? Oh man, I, I it's so funny. I said to my mom, "What if he asked me that?" I don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference between a sport and a game in your mind? I don't know, a, a sport. I think. I mean, both have elements of competition. I think a sport has to have some element of of, of physical exertion, uh, and yeah, and it's less a puzzle of the mind than it is of the body. Well, yeah, I mean, but I mean, like people, people train for these matches. You know, it it is like an act of physical endurance to be locked in a a mind game with somebody that could go over days. You know, when these games are adjourned, and um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, I have a. utmost respect for the people who uh, play chess and I don't want to land hard one place or another that uh, would seem like I was uh, um, marginalizing what they do in any way you know I uh, <clears throat> yeah it's a good one you well your sp- show is a sports show so uh, in the context of Jay Zirin and the edge of sports I'm going to go sport. Okay, we'll, we'll roll with that. And are, are you prepared for the deluge of Beth Harmon Halloween costumes this year? <laughs> um, it's been wild. It's fun. I mean, there's a ton of fan art every day. You know, we wake up and see all of these really imaginative uh, things that people are doing. Uh, and just to imagine that anything we did is uh, inspiring people to such a degree. Uh, it's what you hope for as as storytellers and and content creators and um, you know uh, thank God we're not inspiring people to you know uh, go out and hurt anybody we're inspiring them to uh, see the potential of uh, self realization and uh, getting involved in something that uh, uh, you know has a lot of um, beautiful qualities to it. So yeah, I'm, I'm tickled pink. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, Bill Horberg, I really do appreciate your time. I mean, obviously there's so many questions, not to mention, um, you know, both compliments and critiques that are coming at this precisely because it's made such a wide impact uh, at a time when monocultural th- raves are, are so rare. Queen's Gambit is becoming something that people across the spectrum are enjoying. So congratulations to you on it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, Good conversation. I enjoyed it. And um, yeah, uh, I'm uh, glad that so many people wrote in and have so much curiosity about it. That's great. Oh, yeah. No, it's been like nothing else. Um, (laughs) And and if you're ever going to make that sports flick, give me a call. Okay, man. Well, if you ever write one, send it my way. You got it. (laughs) That's Bill Forberg, everybody. Please uh, stay tuned for a quick message from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this. But first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important. And The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. 
This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, it's 2020, so of course an NFL game was just played at 3.40 p.m. on a Wednesday. The Baltimore Ravens lost 19-14 to the unbeaten Pittsburgh Steelers, but the real story is why this Thanksgiving matchup was played on a weekday afternoon in December. It's a story of pandemic and a possible labor protest. For six consecutive days leading up to the contest, a multitude of players on the Baltimore Ravens were diagnosed with COVID-19, and the game was moved three times as the positive tests rolled in. All told, 16 players on the Ravens were out for the game after contracting the virus, including a whopping seven players who've been to a Pro Bowl. This included the team's MVP quarterback, Lamar Jackson. At its height, the Ravens had more than 20 players on the COVID list, and the players are pissed off. Their rage stems from the fact that this outbreak is believed to have been caused by their team's head strength and conditioning coach, Steve Saunders, who is disciplined by the team for not consistently wearing a mask at the team's indoor facility. The organization's response to the crisis has been tepid. Meanwhile, fans have created an online petition gathering steam to have Saunders fired. Baltimore Sun columnist Mike Preston called for heads to roll as a result of the outbreak, writing, More than 250,000 people in this country have died from this pandemic, so there should be zero tolerance. Either follow the protocol or find a new job. Instead, the Baltimore football team has adopted the approach of next man up, as if there is a strain of sprained ankles being spread around the clubhouse. That this outbreak occurred among the Ravens should not be a surprise. Chekhov's gun was brandished in the offseason when head coach John Harbaugh said with a macho swagger of the virus, you can look at it any way you want to look at it, but I'm not going to run for cover and I don't think the NFL is either. But this isn't a gunfight at the OK Corral. This isn't about bravery or fear. The virus doesn't care how many times you can bench press 225 pounds and it doesn't give a damn if a healthy football player gives it to someone far less able to fend off the worst effects. Now the gun has gone off and the team was ravaged right before facing their bitterest division rival in what so far was their most important game of the season. The Ravens players are not happy with the organization's culpability in this outbreak. There was even talk of refusing to play, choosing instead to engage in a wildcat strike and forfeit the game in protest. They were that angry. If the Ravens had flexed their labor power, they would have continued the actions by NBA and WNBA players over the summer who struck for racial justice following the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The Ravens threatened to join other workers in using the strike to make demands about their health and safety during the pandemic. Had they gone through with it, they would have been in direct conflict with their union, the NFL Players Association, which signed on to this idea that games would be delayed but not canceled or players on both teams would be forfeiting game checks. It would have been a radical act in defense of their own health, because who really knows if more players have COVID at this point? That puts the Steelers players at risk as well. Now announcers have fallen all over themselves to praise the NFL and the union for playing every game on the schedule without cancellation, even though many clubs have had players ruled ineligible, 
even though 28 of the 32 clubs have been in the league's COVID protocol, even though the Broncos had to play Sunday without a quarterback, even though the Ravens were beaten, albeit barely, with just half a team on the field. If there's one thing we've learned about sports in the pandemic, it is that unless you are able to convince the players to get in a hermetically sealed bubble to play and also to live, outbreaks are inevitable. The NFL has tried to brazen its way through the pandemic. Given the right-wing macho ethos of the league's franchise owners, this is not surprising. But it is another example of the unmitigated disaster that has been the United States' response to the pandemic under Trump's leadership. Sports writer Jane McManus was correct when she wrote that sports are the reward for a functioning society. Our society is not functioning, and our athletes will suffer just as surely as the rest of us. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Welcome back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now's the part of the show where I do the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards. The Just Stand Up awards stand up. this week goes to somebody who didn't necessarily do anything this past week. But I still want to say a proper goodbye and give a proper tribute to someone who always stood up for the people in D.C. I'm talking about the Washington Wizards point god, John Wall. After 10 years of playing for our Wizards, he was traded. My kid was crying, and I had to argue with my son not to tear all his Wizards gear off the walls. Now Wall, along with a first-round draft pick, was traded for Russell Westbrook, and yes, this is probably a good trade for the Wizards. Westbrook is a nine-time All-NBA player. Wall has made the team once. I get it. I get that this is about the Wizards trying to prove to their all-star, or should have been all-star, shooting guard Bradley Beal that they are a serious team. But I think of the John Wall who gave so much to kids in D.C. I think of the John Wall who marched and chanted at a Black Lives Matter rally over the summer. I think of the John Wall who was loved by this area in a way that outsiders, frankly, don't understand. He reminded us that this is a basketball town to its core. He reminded us that this is a place whose tradition extends to people like Elgin Baylor and Adrian Dantley, all the way up to Kevin Durant. He reminded us that hoops could be fun again, and he will be terribly missed. So Just Stand Up Award this week goes to the new Houston Rocket, and I can't believe how crazy that sounds, John Wall. The Just Sit Down Award this week, sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. Goes to the Wizards general manager, Tommy Shepard. Tommy Shepard, who's done, I think, a great job with the Wizards taking over for the horrific Ernie Grunfeld and trying to turn this into an NBA franchise. But I got to give him Just Sit Your Ass Down for leaking, first of all, that the trade was going to happen and upsetting John Wall, putting him in a position where he felt like he had to demand a trade, and then Tommy Shepard denying it 
and then saying that he didn't think that there was going to be any movement, and then just a couple days later sending Wall for Westbrook. I don't think that Tommy Shepard took into account the emotional roller coaster he was going to put people on DC, particularly young people in DC, on by operating in such a way. I get that it's a business. I'm not an idiot. But I also have to say that it's not just a business. And if you understand that sports is not just a business, that it's part of the fabric of a community, then you understand also just exactly why the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award this week goes to Tommy Shepard. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Uh, thank you so much to Bill Horberg. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigaboo, for everybody out there listening. Wear a mask. Please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.